The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the Spirituality and Health Annual Holiday Gift Guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. Email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or call 231-933-5660, extension 305. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Matthew Fox, holds a doctorate in spirituality from the Institut Catholique de Paris and has authored 32 books on spirituality and contemporary culture that have been translated into 60 languages. He has devoted most of his life to developing the teaching and teaching the tradition of creation spirituality. Among his books are Original Blessing, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, A Spirituality Named Compassion, and Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Time. You can read an excerpt of his newest book, A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey, on our website, spiritualityhealth.com. Matthew Fox, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. Good to be with you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So, because we've talked so often and we've known each other for so long, let me start by letting our listeners know that you and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time and that I consider you one of my teachers and mentors, not just in my studies of creation, spirituality, and the cosmic Christ, but in spirituality in general. So, this is not uh, a cold call here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great compliment to be called one of your teachers because I respect so much the work you do and the good humor with which you do it. Well, thank you very much. So we'll we'll put an end to this mutual admiration conversation <laughs> and go on to what's wrong with your thinking. Here we go. <laughs> so let me start with something that Thomas Merton wrote to you in 1967. So we're going way back, but still, Thomas Merton wrote to you and he said and I'm quoting here, I am glad that you're going to work on spiritual theology. I do think that we are laying down on the job when we leave others to investigate mysticism while we concentrate on more practical things. What people want of us, after all, is the way to God. That close quote. So, you're, in in the new book, A a Way to God, you're picking up this this theme, you write about it in the book, and you, you pick it up from this letter, but I need to have some definitions. So, how do you understand God and the way to God? Well, of course, um, the, the, the meaning of God has so many uh, possibilities. Thomas Aquinas says, every creature is a name for God, and no creature is a name for God. So, that's the cataphatic divinity, the God of 
light uh, that is found in all creatures. That's the image of God and the cosmic Christ, the Buddha nature found in every being in the universe. But again, the apophatic divinity is that there's no name worthy of God. And so Eckhart says, God is super essential darkness who has no name and will never be given a name. So that's the mysterious part, and uh, some people call it the transcendent part of divinity. So I think we have to live with both. We have to learn to dance between the, the God of um, of the everyday, everyday and, and of all beings and all people, and the God who is unnamed and unnameable, the mystery that is Godhead. So two sides to the same coin, in a sense. That's right. That's right. It's, and it's not unlike the, a day. You know, a day has the sunlight and the day has the night. You've got the sun, you've got the moon. So uh, a lot of things come bifurcated when we look around uh, in, uh, in, in the way things are and the way nature is. So do you, I mean, you're talking about a way to God. Um, mm-hmm. In this context, in the context of the new book, what, what is the way you're sort of focusing on? Well, I'm I'm focusing on the creation spirituality way because clearly this was uh, Thomas Merton's um, uh, discovery, if you will, the last 10 years of his life. Merton underwent um, three stages, really. I think his stage as a, as a young man, where he was quite a party goer, both in England and later in, at Columbia University in uh, New York. And then he had a conversion experience at the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Cuba, and shortly after that, he entered the Trappists, who were a very strict order. Uh, they get up in the middle of the night to chant the Psalms, wisdom literature, and uh, they tend not even to talk. They tend to do sign language and all the rest. Very, very strict order. And um, he lived that uh, lifestyle until about 1958. And, and included in it, he wrote an autobiography in 1948 that was filled with uh, remorse and, and regret and, um, and guilt and shame over all the bad things he had done as a young man. Uh, but he kind of overdoes it, too. He compares himself to Stalin and to Hitler and all this, which is a bit of a aggrandized ego, actually. But uh, in 1958, he encountered uh, the work of um, uh, Dr. Suzuki, who brought Zen to North America, a Japanese Buddhist. And uh, Suzuki told him that Merton, or that Meister Eckhart is the one Zen thinker of the West and that he must study Eckhart. So Merton finally got down to doing that and it was a complete shift for him. He he moved 180 degrees from being this guilt-ridden Augustinian-like monk uh, and very dualistic in the 40s and most of the 50s to moving into a very prophetic um, stance as a Christian at the rest the last 10 years of his life. And this included a lot of uh, interfaith. He was very uh, keen on Buddhism and, and Eastern religions in general and wrote about them in some depth. And also it included a prophetic uh, role because he was very fierce uh, about um, uh, technology's shadow side, about uh, militarism, about the Vietnam War. He was the first religious figure in America, I think, to come out against the war. In fact, I think it may have cost him his life. And um, uh, issues of racism, he, he supported King when it was dangerous to do so, and also Malcolm X. And he, ver- he wrote a book on the genocide toward Native Americans 
uh, in that history. So, and then ecology, he, he supported Rachel Carson while she had just been fired from her science department and at the university, he uh, wrote her and praised her for her breakthrough book, Silent Spring, that really launched the ecological movement and said because of her book, they were going to cease using DDT on the uh, farm at the monastery. And, um, and he was very much in the front uh, front lines of the of the uh, burgeoning uh, women's movement because he he uh, he had a correspondence with Rosemary Ruther, a uh, liberation and, and feminist theologian from the Catholic Church. It was only twenty nine at the time when he was fifty, and they were in this very uh, serious dialogue. She was not at all easy on him. In fact, she was quite quite uh, uh, unrespectful at times. But uh, he took it, and he learned a lot from her too. So. He was an amazing figure, and um, so I, I'm going to interrupt you because this is as important as this this overview is. Uh, I don't know how long you're going to go before I got to go back to this notion that you think his stand against the Vietnam War may have cost him his life. Now he dies in you know officially is it an accident. A f is, is it a fan falls into a bathtub and when he's in Thailand? Am I right about that? Yeah, it, it makes no sense. Yes. Okay. In Bangkok, so what do you think happened? In Bangkok, um, he gave a talk entitled Karl Marx and Monasticism to about 150 nuns and monks, and three hours later he was dead. And we're asked to believe that he, he took a shower, he stepped out of the shower soaking wet, and plugged, plugged a fan into the wall. Now, people who knew Merton personally uh, say the nearest thing to Merton was a, a New York taxi driver. He was not an abstract kind of guy living living in clouds. Would you step out of a shower soaking wet and plug it into the uh, the fan on the wall? Furthermore, he was there the day before, and it's hot in Thailand at that time of year. It was December, and... Um, uh, surely the fan worked earlier. Why was it all of a sudden have a short in it that killed him? I have spoken now to three CIA agents who were there in Southeast Asia at the time and asked him, did you kill Merton? One of them said, I'll neither affirm it nor deny it. The other one said, we were swamped in swimming in money and there was absolutely no um, accountability at the time. Any CIA agent who felt Merton was a threat to the a country could have done him in, and the truth is that we now know they were um, they were uh, uh, listening to his phone calls and opening his mail, all of which was illegal at the time, just like they were doing with Dr. King. But the third person I asked, and this person I asked, a CIA agent who was there in Southeast Asia, uh, after my book came out a month ago, he said, "Yes, we killed him." Wow, we're talking with Dan Brown on the conspiracy. No, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, that, he was a, he is, was a martyr to the peace cause, and I mean, it's I, fascinating. I, but my goodness, there have been thousands of martyrs in South America in our lifetime, and yeah. including my former student, uh, Sister Dorothy Stang. And you know, we're not paying very much attention to that. Yeah, I, I have no trouble believing that. I do have yeah. trouble believing that that he didn't understand the nature of electricity and water. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think you make a really interesting point. Have you written about this, or this is something it's that we're breaking? Book. It's in the book. Oh, this is you in the book. Wait, the book I, yet. <laughs> I, no, I've got the book right in front of me. I so guess first, I, it's at the end of the Via Transformativa chapter. Uh, I take it up. But I'm only speaking of those two CIA agents. Since the book came out, I met this third who was who was completely candid with me. Wow. Okay. I've, I mean, I've got, the, I was actually open to that chapter, but I was quoting from something else. Okay. Very interesting. I will go back and finish that chapter because <laughs> that is 
Amazing. Well, let me let me ask you something else that uh, you mentioned, which both you and Merton have in common, and you've actually written a book about it, uh, which is Meister Eckhart. Eckhart's definition of God, well, maybe one of them anyway, according to to what you've written, is that God is isness. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You know, right? Is that fair to say? Yes. Is that He says, yes, isness is God, he says. Isness which, is God. Which to me comes right out of... The, the revelation in the story of, of Moses at the burning bush where God says, uh-huh. you know, Ehia, that's basically what Ehia is. Is this fair? Yes. Is that your own sort of the bottom line of your own theology? Um, it certainly is is a part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, 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 Eckhart did a whole exegesis of Exodus 3, uh, 3, 1. Is it 3, 1? 3, 15? Anyway, um, uh, yes, he, he he does pluck that from the from the Jewish tradition. Of course, I am who I am. I am who I will be. And of course, he also gets it from Thomas Aquinas, who preceded him. They were both Dominicans, and Aquinas was very big on on God as existence. Also, um, so yes, I think existence is the greatest of all mysteries. Really, isn't it? Why why do we exist as distinct from not exist? Yeah, and, <laughs> I, and you were uh, a Dominican. Yes, I was indeed. Yeah. Yes, so. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that that Merton was seemed at least, at least as I understood it. He had no idea. He didn't know anything about Meister Eckhart until D.T. Suzuki. Uh, well, no, he did actually, because for his master's degree, uh, his master's thesis at Columbia, he wrote a book on Kumar Swami's book uh, on nature and okay. Um, okay. art and nature. And there's a whole chapter there on Eckhart. And interesting enough, it is that chapter. When I read it, that was my introduction to Eckhart. So Merton commented in his master's thesis something very positive about Eckhart, but then he kind of let it go. Now, I looked, I went to the Merton uh, Center where all of his papers are, and I looked up some of his teachings in the early 50s. And when he was teaching novices and others in the monastery about Eckhart, what he was saying was, beware, beware, he's very dangerous, he's very dangerous, he's a heretic, so be careful. But uh, that Suzuki, it totally flips with Suzuki. It's just the opposite. And later in his life, Eckhart, uh, Merton was saying, writing, Eckhart is my lifeboat, Eckhart is my lifeboat. So yeah. there was this 180-degree turn, really, with, with Merton and Eckhart, and it was thanks to Suzuki. Do you feel the same way? I mean, you wrote this whole book on Eckhart. Eckhart is your lifeboat, in a sense. Not, not your only one, I think. I wrote I think three you... books on Eckhart, actually. I right, love Eckhart. So. And, um, uh, but I never had the, the idea that he was, that he was a, a problem because he was a heretic. But the truth is, in all my training as a Dominican, 12 years, I never heard his name once. Oh, that's and nice he was a Dominican. So yeah. I discovered Eckhart not through the Dominicans, but through Kumaraswamy, the Hindu, who says, yeah. by the way, in that book, reading Eckhart is like reading the Upanishads. And uh, this yeah, is you a say that. In, yeah, you quote him in the new book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I mean, that's that really speaks to your whole notion of deep ecumenism. That he's hearing it from Kumaraswamy as a you, yeah. and then D.T. Suzuki, and exactly. It's, it's, 
It's it so fascinating. Yeah. It takes Asians to tell us where our treasures are in the Western religion. Isn't that, doesn't that show how out of touch the church is with its, with its essence, with its real treasures? It was well, great so, mystics. So let me ask you this, because that brings me, we've got like five minutes left to the show, but let me see if we can explore this a little bit, this notion. And I would say not just the church, I would say, you know, the organized religion in general, but yes. let's, let's, let's stick with the church for a moment. Uh, you you were Dominican. Now you're an Episcopal priest. Is that fair? Still, you're, that's yes. I was Dominican for 34 years, and I was booted by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became a Pope Benedict XVI. Mm-hmm. And now you're in the Episcopal world. <laughs> right? Well, I hope I'm in a bigger world than that. It's well, that's of- what I'm okay. That and that's my question. That's my question. So, do you consider yourself, or maybe it might put it this way: it, Why you why why the focus on the Christian narrative? Do you, do you consider yourself part of that narrative, or are you part of something larger? Well, I think we're all part of something larger, um, and and even in the Christian theology, there's a great distinction between the kingdom of God and church. And uh, I hope we're all part of the kingdom of God. And the great um, biblical scholar. Um, uh, Stendhal, Christopher Stendhal once said to me, every time you see the word Basileia, the word kingdom in the, in the New Testament, you have a right to translate it as creation. So my work on creation spirituality is about exactly that. It's about the universe. It's about all beings in the universe and all the religions in the universe. So it's a pretty big topic, but um, the truth is that it's, it can be very intimate too, as everybody knows. Uh, uh, our experience with nature and the experience with God can be extremely intimate, even though it's very immense. But, you know, Merton never leaves the church. You haven't left Christianity as, I mean, you're mm-hmm. still, you know, Father Matthew. So, <laughs> um, I, I, there, is there something in that narrative, in that tradition that, that really speaks to you so compellingly that you can be as open as you want and yet you still are anchored there? You know, uh, I met someone recently who was a very uh, busy practicing serious Buddhist. He's North American, but he's been to India such a many times, knows the Dalai Lama. He said the Dalai Lama was asked um, uh, not long ago, do you believe in God? And he said, well, yes, I believe in God. And then the questioner kept pushing him, well, really, as a Buddhist? And what, what does it mean? What does it mean, this God? And then the Dalai Lama said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton. <laughs> <laughs> remember that, that uh, Merton met the Dalai Lama on his last journey, the Eastern journey to Asia, when, and the Dalai Lama was only 33 years old, but they really hit it off together. But what Christianity brings, I think, is, is uh, when it's healthy, it is the, the prophetic tradition of Israel uh, and with the mystical tradition of wisdom literature. And as scholars agree, the historical Jesus comes from that wisdom tradition. This is about finding the divine in nature. It's creation spirituality. And, um, but, but of course, for me, creation spirituality is not limited to Christians or, or Jews or even believers. I think we're all immersed in creation. The question is, can we recover it as uh, an experience of the sacred, an experience of the divine? And for me, the whole archetype of the cosmic Christ, which is the, the teaching that the Christ, the light of God, is present in all beings in the universe, parallels today's science, that there are photons in every atom in the universe, but it's also the image of God tradition in Judaism, which is in all beings in the universe, and the Buddha nature tradition in, in Buddhism, where the Buddha nature is in all beings in the universe. So I think these are radically uh, uh, substantive 
and foundational ways of seeing the world that we all have to wake up to today because this is, I think, the the issue with the ecological crisis, that we've lost a sense of the sacred uh, all around us and through us. And Merton was a champion of, of this uh, the last 10 years of his life. As as are you for, for a lot longer than that. So <laughs> this, this was a fascinating conversation, always way too short. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami, and thank you for your good questions and your <laughs> probing curiosity. Ah, you're welcome. Our guest today was Matthew Fox. His newest book, A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey, has just been published, and an excerpt of the book can be found on our website, spiritualityhealth.com. Support for this podcast comes from Spirituality and Health Annual Holiday Gift Guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue, both in, in the print magazine and online. The gift guide features inspiring and unique products, not only for the holidays, but for any gift-giving occasion. To reach out to our readers and listeners to share your products with them, reserve your advertising space by emailing Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or call us at 231-933-5660 and dial extension 305. The number again is 231-933-5660, extension 305. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.